Welcome back, NodPod. Thank you guys so much for joining me for another episode of Chasing Heroin. If you are watching the video on Spotify, I look particularly disheveled, probably. Sorry about that. I forgot to do the intro. Usually I do them like the second after I record the guest. Or I didn't forget, but I was like running off. I had to go do something. So anyways, today's guest is Suki Jones. She wrote a book called See, Swallow Me. It's an addiction memoir. Also, trigger warning, we do talk about childhood sexual abuse and molestation. So please take care while listening. The book is incredible. I loved reading it. It reads really quickly and it's interesting because it actually kind of, it ends when she gets sober, but I also feel like that's like when we are beginning. And so it was cool to be able to talk to her about that part of things, right? It's the lead up. And what I think is really unique and special about her story is some of what she went through when she was growing up is some of the more traumatic things that I could imagine happening to a person. And not only did she get clean and sober, she's been clean and sober for like over 20 years. And we also talk about like the methadone grind. And I say this in the show and I want to say this again because in my episode with Brad, we talk about, quote, the methadone grind. And somebody commented on my TikTok and was like, hey, I felt kind of shitted on with the methadone thing because, you know, like I think it works. And I want to say for the record, I'm super pro Matt. I think I think that you guys know that. What I do think though is challenging is the way that the methadone clinic set up the logistics and the process. Like you have to be there in those super limited hours and they're always like early in the morning. And for the average addict who's either still actively using or like attempting to get back on our feet, getting there early with 15 bucks every single day, like that's tough getting to the point where we get take homes. I actually think that that process could potentially be a little easier and help people. And that to me is what I find challenging about it. But she is an example of a successful methadone story. And so we talk about that success as defined by her. So that means that she did it for a while and then she ultimately did a taper through them and detoxed and stopped using at the end of that because that was ultimately her goal and methadone allowed her to regulate her life to get things in order and to be able to parent her children and then when she felt she was ready and able she got off the methadone and i think it can be used in a couple of different ways i think it can be used in that way i also think it can be used as maintenance i'm actually interviewing somebody last week who has been on a successful maintenance methadone journey for a while And both Suki and I say this in the episode, we're both very much in favor of harm reduction and all of those efforts, especially now, right? Obviously. And we both say like, I would sponsor people on methadone. I have sponsored people on Suboxone. I haven't ever had anybody on methadone ask me, but like I would. She did though, she actually pointed out something really good because I was like, why do they make it so difficult to get it? And she did say, she was like, I don't actually know, but if I had to guess, I would say it's probably because it's probably because it trains you to start to have a routine, kind of like they do in rehab. You have to get up early and clean things and go and, you know, you have to start to learn to like regulate your life before you assimilate into society. So like maybe that's the reason. And I thought, well, that's actually a great reason. If that is why, that is a valid reason. I always thought maybe it was because like the funding didn't pay for them to be their past nine or something like, I don't know, which also feels like that could be a possibility. But anyways, we have a great conversation. I feel like I've known her forever. And I think you guys are really going to enjoy this conversation. I learned a lot from her. She's a great storyteller. It's a very entertaining and inspirational episode. I really enjoyed chatting with her. So Skylar is still doing well. He's working. He has like 70-ish days. Is going to meetings. He's actually at a meeting right now. He met with a sponsor. They were doing the third step. And I'm so grateful for the sponsor that he found. I feel like it was the perfect guy for him. And I was praying that he would find his quote, Rachel, because Rachel was the perfect person for me. And I didn't even choose Rachel. It was like fate. 
I actually had just said to her, I don't know if I've ever even shared this story. I had said to her on the phone because I knew her from Choices. I was like, well, I would ask you, but you only have nine months. So, you know, and I was actually saying that kind of to be like nice because I, I liked her, but I wouldn't have thought that Rachel had a lot that I needed to learn. And she was like, yeah. And then the next time we spoke, she was like, oh my God, I asked Debbie and I can sponsor you, her sponsor. And I was like, oh, cool. Honestly, that's how it actually happened. And I could not have picked a more perfect person for me. She in March will have been my sponsor for 10 years. And I've always said like, it's one of the smartest things I ever did, but I didn't even really do that. I didn't even really pick her. She was like chosen for me. And I've been praying that he would find his Rachel. And I think this guy is pretty close. They're very similar. He's also married, which I thought is helpful because not only is he married, but he lied to his wife while he was using and she stayed with him. And so like, I think it's helpful for Skylar to have the feedback of a guy that's married and wanting to work out a marriage and but did also hurt the marriage through like lies. And then how do you respond to me when I'm angry? Because, you know, a single guy who's like 24 or 25 is going to be like, you know, I mean, they might have some good advice, but this guy like knows what it means to work it out after the consequences of somebody being an active addict. I am kind of bummed because I'm not going to be able to go see my dad for Christmas this year. And I thought that I could finally, I haven't spent Christmas morning with my dad since 1997, which is insane and so embarrassing because when I think about him, when he was my age, not only could he have gone and seen his parents, he flew them to Vegas and to do all these things and you know I get like he's got a master's degree in aeronautical science and I didn't finish college and I mean both my parents do and they are so successful and homeowners and like I know that things are different but it still kind of feels like so illusory to know that I, I haven't seen him in all these years you know so once again you know maybe hopefully next year but I'm always so grateful for the relationship that I have with him anyways you know so and then Thanksgiving is this week studios going good so yeah, I hope that you guys have a good holiday. As I record this, Thanksgiving is on Thursday. And what I am grateful for is that last year was so fucking horrific. Skylar was gone on Thanksgiving Day. I think he took off on Thanksgiving Day. He took off on Christmas. He took off on my birthday. It was a very, very rough year. And so I am grateful that I'm teaching actually on Thursday on Thanksgiving and he's taking my class. And so even without being able to fly home to Georgia, I'm very happy for circumstances as they are this year. Can you guys believe all that shit was happening last year? I never even mentioned it once. I think I was in like super denial. I also kept thinking that like, he would just stop the next day. He would just stop the next day. He would just stop the next day. So anyways, I hope you guys have a great holiday week. DM me. I'm available if anybody wants to talk or say anything or reach out to me if you guys need anything. I'm available. And thank you last week for Eden's episode. I definitely got some comments on Instagram that I was able to repost and share. And the guests really love seeing that too, actually. She reshared everything. And she's just like the nicest lady ever. Can you guys believe that's Fidal Sassoon's daughter? If you didn't know who that was, was. I hope that you Googled it. I started to say in the intro, I would have thought everyone knew who she was, but then I didn't finish the thought of why I was emphasizing the thought. It's because I said it in my class and there was a couple of people that didn't know who Vidal Sassoon was. And I was like, what? What are we old? So anyways, love you guys. Hope you enjoyed the episode. Always, always let me know your feedback and we'll check in next week. Okay, so one of the things that I love about your book is that you integrate music, although it makes me feel, so that that era of music, like the punk metal scene, 
that so many heroin addicts are familiar with and is like speaks to them on a soul level. I don't know anything about that music. I think that's how I feel about like classic rock, but I still can recognize that you've got that woven throughout your book, which I think is so cool. And I can just picture you in the Bay Area with your like Doc Martin boots and your cute hair, like the picture that you described when you applied for a job at Tower Records. But before we get there, because you don't start in San Francisco, <laughs> you randomly start in fucking Nebraska. <laughs> so yes. let's talk about starting in Nebraska with your family and your parents and what that looked like. Yeah. My earliest memories back like with my parents are that it was very chaotic in our house. Like it wasn't, I was an only child, so I didn't have siblings. So it was just me and my mom and my dad. And I mean, my dad was, I was going to say when my dad was drinking and I was like, well, he was always drinking. <laughs> so it wasn't like a when, <laughs> depending on what his alcoholism or addiction looked like that day. Like I never knew day to day, like what version of him I would get. Or, you know, and my mom was always trying to kind of keep everything even and light and like, you know, just like kind of like make sure there were no waves and like keep everything steady because my dad was, you know, like, you just didn't know. You didn't know what you were going to get. No, he was wildly out of control. I mean, not to... Yeah, wildly, yeah. The hitting your ears. Yes. When you yeah. were seven. I feel like uh -huh. that says a lot about the idea that, well, it's narcissistic to think that you represent him somehow. And so your image has to be up to par to represent him. So will you share that story about the ear pinning? Sure. <laughs> it's so funny, even thinking of, even like thinking back about it, like there wasn't anything like where kids were teasing me about my ears. I didn't recognize that my ears stuck out more than normal. Like yeah. even like I'll look back at pictures of myself from like kindergarten and preschool and I'm like, I mean, they look like, they just look like ears. Like they're not unusual or anything. Who's going to say that? Do you look back at pictures and think like, oh yeah, they were a little bit Alfalfa-esque. No. Okay. <laughs> but I think because my, no, <laughs> but I think like, and I understand it from like an alcoholic, like an addiction perspective, like my dad would fixate on things. Like, and a lot of the time I was the center of that fixation. Like it was you know, like what I was wearing or what I was eating or who I was playing with or, you know, and so for whatever reason, he all of a sudden, you know, d decided that I needed to have my ears fixed. And so it wasn't even a discussion. Like it was just an announcement sort of my mom and dad were like, oh, we're get you're going to go to the hospital and have your ears pinned. It's a you'll be home in a few days. <laughs> and that was it. Like that was like, you know, I was seven. So like there was no, you know, like I don't want to or anything like that, you know, so it was just, you know, this is happening so that, you know, what does that even entail that surgery? It was, I think what they did, and I don't, I don't even know for sure, but I guess like, and I can't even see the scars, but like, sometimes I'll have other people look, I'm like, are there still like little marks back there? Cause you know, I can't see behind my ears, but I think it was, they clipped the cartilage or something and pull like kind of suture them back a little bit. Okay. Something like that. I had to, so I was in the hospital for a couple days. I remember they let me take my teddy bear into the operating room. And like, I had it next to me. And then I remember them like having me count backwards and just kind of like feeling that 
you know, that feeling where you're like falling, like the anesthesia. And then I woke up in a hospital bed and uh, my teddy bear was next to me and, and her ears had been wrapped also. Like they wrapped her ears oh. also, which was kind of cute, you know. That's sweet <laughs> that the hospital did it is that. Sweet. You know, were yeah, you there? it is kind of sweet. <laughs> were you there alone? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I was in the, it was a room by myself. My, my mom was there, like, in, you know, like when I woke up and, okay, okay, and okay. stuff. But, um, and we, we had a tornado the night before my surgery also. So oh, I was alone shit. in the hospital and uh, there was a tornado. So we had to all go into the hallway and like, <laughs> as if I wasn't scared enough, you know. Can you imagine, now that you have kids, can you imagine when they were seven, like some of the things that you hear about just like happened back then, it's like, can you imagine doing that to one of your boys when they were seven, just leaving them in a hospital and you're not even there? That's crazy. Absolutely not. Like I just, I wouldn't. I that would wouldn't never happen. Yeah. I wonder yeah. if there was some poor nurse that was like, this is wrong, what we're doing. I'm going to help her by right? wrapping the teddy bear. Yeah, there must have been some like empathetic nurse working, you know. And the reason I bring that up too is because I feel like it shows a bunch of different things. It shows, you know, dad's narcissism, mom's powerlessness, because I don't know if she even wanted this, you know. I'm sure I'm sure she didn't. And she, we talked because we discussed things in the book, like when I was writing it and I was like, and she was like, I don't really remember like what the conversation was like leading up to it. But again, she reiterated, like, if your dad wanted it done, like that was kind of like, like she wasn't going to win that battle. Yeah. Totally. You know, like that wasn't. Totally. So. Did it contribute to you early on? Because later you struggle a lot with various eating disorders. Did it contribute early on to a belief that your appearance was your value? It had to have like earlier than the average. We all get hit with that women. I mean, when we're, I don't know, nine, 10, 11, like it comes in at different times. Maybe when we start to associate value with our appearance and hopefully we have a parent there to remind us that we're smart and capable and it isn't about, you know, but do you think it started that process for you early? I mean, do you know, looking back or have you thought about that? I have thought about it because it's come up in therapy, you know, because I, re I remember the look on my therapist's face when I told him, you know, like I had this surgery done at seven and he was like, what? <laughs> so yeah, I think it definitely played into it. Like there, there was just kind of that undercurrent in my dad's family in particular, like well, not my mom's family, like they were like, whatever, but like my dad's family very much valued, like my mom, my grandmother was a, was a socialite. So like, she like was very like appearance based, very formal, very like, there's no problems. There's nothing going on here. Never. She never admitted to my dad being an alcoholic or oh, okay. anything like that. You know, like there were nothing, everything was perfect in the family and you had to and it had to look that way from the outside. So I absolutely think that contributed to like anorexia, bulimia, like things like that, that I struggled with in my very early teens, for sure. Was he successful at work? Did he earn a living? There was a family business. Okay. So he was able to kind of, you know, like be vice president of the company and like drink in his office all day. Okay. You know, so. Okay. I mean, if, if it wasn't that way, I don't think. You know, I don't, I don't know how he would have gotten by, but you right. know, like okay. because his family was the way it was, and they enabled him, and the appearance was everything. Mm -hmm. He could just, you know, not show up for work or drink in his office all day or take clients to lunch right. <laughs> all day. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So I know they eventually split up. What 
did that look like? How did you, cause you were still pretty young. What did that look like? How did you guys eventually leave? And this is when you go to California. Right. My mom had left my dad when I was like 11 months old. Like the, I think the first time she left him, I'm doing air quotes a lot. <laughs> when she left him the first right. time, I'm yeah. like, she really did. But the first time she left him, I was 11 months old and I actually took my first steps in San Francisco, like Aww. that when I was a baby, like I, we have, we're out here on like a breakup, <laughs> you know, like that's kind had, of prophetic. Had, yes. Cause then yeah. you took your first steps later. Right. But then yes. like your first steps about that. in sobriety and yeah. in life were in a San Francisco meeting. That's kind of yeah. cool. I've never thought about that. That's true. Yeah. We did that a lot. Like where, you know, there'd be a really big fight. My mom would pack us up. We'd get on a plane, come out to the Bay Area, stay for, you know, a week or a couple weeks or whatever, and then we'd go back. So, you know, as my dad's alcoholism escalated and as the tension in their relationship ratcheted up, things got more and more intense until, you know, he was drinking and using to a point where he was, you know, acting crazier there was word that my, he had put a hit out on my mom. So that's when we left. We left like for good. <laughs> okay. Do you yeah. know how that information came into her knowledge? Do you have any idea? They had mutual friends. And so like there were friends that like hung out with my dad in like bars and partied with him with like rougher, a rougher crowd, right. you know? Okay. So, so he, that information through those same friends got back to my mom and Emma, then my dad during visitation, a visitation on a weekend said something to the effect of, you know, that he was going to kill my mom, or that my mom didn't deserve to live. And that, you know, like I, you know, like he started talking about her not being alive anymore. And so, you know, like I'm in the backseat of his car and I was blindfolded also because he wouldn't let me, he didn't want my mom to know where he was living. And so during visitations, he would blindfold me in the car back and forth you know, going, leaving my mom's house, their former house together, and then coming back home, I was blindfolded. So I'm in the back seat, blindfolded, you know, hearing all this information and like, you know, trying to hold back the tears because I don't want to let on that I'm as freaked out as I am because he's, he's just threatened my mom's life, you know? Right. Yeah. So, you know, I just remember like falling into my mom and giving her this information. Like when I got home and the door had closed behind me, you know, and I thought she was going to be shocked. You know, like I, I thought, oh my God, like she's like, she's not going to believe this when I tell her, you know, like this is what's happening. And I felt terrible, you know, terribly endangered and like terrified, scared, you know. And my mom was like, was what had already been made aware. So she was like trying to comfort me, you know, like it's going to be okay. Yeah. But like we immediately, like the house was up for sale. We left. So yeah. And that was, I returned to Nebraska later. <laughs> so, cause I want to talk about that too. Yeah. I know your father has passed now and that yeah. you, yeah. you eventually, I don't know if fully reconciled is the right word, but you reconnected and you were there and present when he passed later. Did you ever talk about any of this with him later not in great detail we so what, what happened was he remarried and the woman that he remarried I think he found some sort of sobriety you okay know, he wasn't drinking anymore and so he did he reached out to me okay and we started communicating at first through letters okay and so it was very kind of like him making amends to me but not like any details 
but we were communicating that way for probably a couple of years, I want to say. And, and then we would talk on the phone occasionally. Okay. But, you know, I thought like we have all this time to kind of unpack all this. And the truth is we really didn't because he had cancer and he ended up passing. But so it's bittersweet that like yeah. we were able to have a relationship and he was able to be present in my life and me his also like you know we were able to be in each other's lives to in a capacity or in that capacity but but it was shortly lived and bittersweet how old were you when you guys reconnected I think it was in my was it in my 20s I can't remember I can't remember exactly because we wrote letters back and forth for quite a while okay I think I I'm trying to think if I was sober during the whole time of him writing letters I can't remember exactly. But a long time from the incident that we're going to talk about. Oh my gosh. It had been years. Yeah. Yeah. Years and years, like over a decade. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you essentially grew up, you know, without him. I'm just wondering if he really was going to pull the uh, proverbial trigger on that plan. Do you think he was actually, that was really in motion? Yeah. I'll never know. And like, like, thankfully. Right. (laughs) So I'm, but there were other threats later on. Like there was a a time that I was planning a visit back, like when I was like, I think I was like 22 or something. And I was planning a visit back to Nebraska to visit other friends and relatives. And my grandmother said, you probably shouldn't come. And I was like, why? And it was because he was making threats then against my life. Oh, so um, his mom, his mom said that to you. His mom told me that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. She was like, I think you shouldn't come. And I was like, okay. And then I did end up coming a little like, a few a few years later or maybe a couple of years later like shortly after that I did but I didn't like nobody knew let him know that I was coming it was very like secretive and yeah okay yeah so she leaves and then you go back for a visit and he tries to kidnap you yeah yeah okay. the court because my mom had taken me when we left Nebraska my dad then contacted an attorney or the courts and said we're not, you know, there's no custody order. She's taken my daughter out of the state without my permission. I was sent back to Nebraska. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) Which was, you know, like. Permanently or for a visit? No, for a visit. Okay. 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 So they were like, so they were ironing things out and I don't know like what had been figured out with the attorneys and my mom. So I went back and then during that trip, he was living with the woman that he had been the woman that he had met that had really helped him accelerate his drinking and using, like they were taking a lot of pills. I don't, I don't know what else. Like I know a lot of, a lot of pills and drinking like sun up to sundown. And so while I was staying with them, like they started giving me pills and I, they started talking about taking me. Yeah. And I wasn't really allowed to call my mom. So I was trying to sneak like during the middle of the night to call my mom to tell her this was going on. (laughs) How old were you? I think I was eight or nine. Okay. Yeah. And so they're drugging you and you can sort of hear them saying, because she said, this is vitamins, take them. Yes. Right. Yeah. They, they told me they were vitamins. Do you know where that woman is now? She's passed away. Okay. Yeah. I have former step-siblings that were, again, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, because he married her too. Yes, yeah. Did they know that they were trying to kidnap you, the kids? Do they know now? I mean, did you have any, I guess you didn't have a relationship with them because they split up, so. So here's the interesting thing, is that, so she had children, and my mom was dating someone who, who I didn't realize 
was her ex. Initially was this woman's ex. That's so crazy. I was seeing their children when I was with my mom. Oh my gosh. And I was seeing those, those children when I was with my dad and his girlfriend who became his wife. So. Oh, that's right. And all the kids had to keep it a secret. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Now I remember that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So okay. I'm in contact with one of them in particular more than the other, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very weird situation. <laughs> Did they end up being heroin addicts too? Or No, I don't oh, think so. I think, okay. Yeah. I think well, they're both. Like, yeah, I guess yeah. it's more nature than nurture, you know? Like, yeah. You would think if there was ever like a situation to end up, you know what I mean? Okay. So they're drugging you and you overhear them saying they're going to take you away to relatives. A number of times. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. How yeah. did you finally get in touch with your mom and tell her? I called her during, like during the middle of the night. I, I tried a few times. We had set up the system because we, I don't remember how I knew this, or maybe we had this system in place already, but we had this thing where if I was with my dad, I could call and just ring once and hang up. And she'd know that that was me just saying, hi, I'm okay, you know? And so we had the system in place. And so I had tried to sneak out of bed a number of times or, you know, like just make the one ring phone call. But then I was like, oh my God, I need to, I need to talk to her. <laughs> and I was scared because like, I knew like it would show up on the phone bill, you know, like, oh, I knew right. those, you know, so yeah, I called my mom. Like it was like the middle of the night. The first time I tried to do it, my dad's girlfriend found me in the hallway and was like, what are you doing up? You know? And I was like, uh, nothing. <laughs> So I did get a hold of my mom. I told her what was, ha what was happening. And like, you know, she, of course, thought it was a credible threat because, you know, she knew my dad. So, so yeah, she got her attorneys or the law involved. And then um, I was, you know, within like two days was sent back on a plane. And my mom, to this day, talks about how heartbreaking it was to pick me up at the airport. She said I was like a zombie. Oh my god. Just gosh. from being drugged. You know, here's her little girl like walking off the plane just like loopy, you know. And there was quaaludes that they were giving you, right? Yes. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's crazy. And there were other things too, but okay. the only one I remember are the lemons. That's the only one I remember. What's a lemon? I don't know what that is. Yeah, quaalude. It's oh, lemon okay. across yeah. it. does. So I've never seen one because when yeah, by the when I was using, I really wanted to find them and they're very difficult to find. Like almost I don't even know if they're out there at all anymore. Did you ever see them later as an adult? Because I never have. No. Okay. No. Okay. Uh -uh. I wonder if they're all gone. I know Hugh Hefner <laughs> had like 200 in a safe when oh, he died. I, re I remember hearing about that on the, and I'm like, it was on the documentary. Yeah, watched. it was on the documentary. And I'm like, oh, I wonder if those are the last 200 quaaludes on earth. Like, I wonder <laughs> right. where they went. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, they might be the last ones on earth, you know? Because like- It's if, possible. Yeah, I've never seen them. In fact, when I was living in LA, a friend of mine was going to Mexico and I asked him to ask in a pharmacy. He was a Mexican, spoke the language frequently and commuted back and forth. And I asked him, he had never heard of it, and I was like, can you ask in a pharmacy? And now I feel really bad. He was like this outstanding family man. And, and I, I was like, and I wrote it out. And I was like, can you see if they have these at the pharmacy down there? And he was like, sure, okay. And then we came back, he gave me back the piece of paper. And he was like, no, Mia, sorry, they, they don't have them. And I was like, okay. <laughs> like it was like Tylenol that I wanted to get. And I'm like, all right, well, if it's not down there, maybe it's nowhere, you know, because they never knew yeah. if they had them anywhere else again. So you're now living in San Francisco. You don't see your dad again, obviously, until you guys reconnect much, much later. Well, 
I saw him because I had to go back and testify against him in court. Oh. That was the last time. But we didn't speak at all. We oh. didn't speak. You had to sit at the thing and he was uh-huh. at- <gasps> Get cross-examined the whole thing, like nine years old. Yeah. Whoa. And that was the last time I saw him for well over a decade or even spoke to him like at all. Did you just try to avoid looking at him? I don't remember him, like what he, his reactions were in the courtroom. I remember him being there and I remember being really scared. And I remember, I just remember how big the courthouse seemed to me, like waiting to go inside and like the sound of like women's shoes on the, on the marble floor and like feeling almost like disassociative at that Mm -hmm. age, you know, like where I was like, I just want to get through this. Like I'm. You know, like I was just terrified. Yeah. So yeah, that was the last time I saw him until I was at his deathbed. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Was he criminally charged with anything? No. Mm-mm. Okay. Okay. No. And in fact, like because he had, he came from a wealthy family, he had put in all of his assets into other family members' names. So when it came to like even giving my mom child support, she was allotted one dollar a month. Are you serious? $1. I'm serious. (laughs) Yeah, because in the state of Nebraska at that time, you had to be allotted something. And so she was allotted $1, which was such a slap in the face because his family had money and he had money and assets and a business, you know, and could absolutely afford to be helping my mom. But instead, we struggled terribly, you know, like, and we're, you know, like very poor for many years, you know, like really, my mom really had to struggle and like, you know, try to provide for us. Well, and that kind of brings us to the next, because your life unfortunately doesn't get safer when you move. So you move to San Francisco and you start going to school there. Your mom is working and you guys live near your grandparents, right? We're living at my grandparents. Oh, you were living at your grandparents' house. Mm -hmm. Okay. In their house. Yeah. Okay. I was going to say, is that when the the weird things start with your grandfather? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It started, we hadn't been there that long at all. Like things started happening that were like him just touching me in ways like I wasn't familiar with at all. Like it was, you know, like something I hadn't experienced before and I didn't really know what to make of it. And it progressed like pretty fast where he was, behavior became more and more and more inappropriate. Okay. And then, you know, like where he was actually, you know, like saying things like, you can't tell anybody this is happening because I'll send you back to your dad was one of his biggest threats to me. Oh my gosh. And he would say things like, it'll break your mom's heart. Like just things like that, that like, of course he wouldn't, couldn't have followed through with those things. But when you're, you know, when you're a young You don't know when you're a a kid, you don't know. That's why it works. (laughs) You know, it's why they all say the same shit. It's like the predator handbook. I'll tell people and you're really going to get in trouble then. You know, that's why it works. Yeah. Did you ever tell your mom or anyone that this started happening? Because you guys eventually move out, but it's unrelated to this, right? You didn't tell anybody and you guys get your own place anyway? Yeah. Okay. We, um... She was working, my mom was working, you know, saving money and she had gotten some money from the sale Our our house in Nebraska finally sold. So she had some money from that now. So we were able to move out on our own and the sexual abuse continued. I didn't want my mom to, I was terrified that my mom would find out, not for the reasons that he had tried to instill in me, but because 
I knew how much my mom had been through already, you know, like, and I knew how much, and I knew like how much she was struggling just to like keep, (laughs) keep us afloat. Yeah. So I was like, I can't tell her because I can't put one more thing on her plate. Like I, I just felt like I couldn't burden her with that. And so I was like, I can take care of this. I can deal with this. I really couldn't. But you know, that was my thought was like, I wanted to protect my mom from this. And it was her dad. So, you know, like, I was like, how would I tell her this, you know? So I journaled about it. I wrote about it. I wrote about every single incident and like kept this secret diary that she eventually found. Oh, is that how she found out? That's how she found out. Yeah. Oh, shit. Yes. Oh, I don't think I knew that. Okay. So another question. And by the way, thank you for being willing to talk about this. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like there's, there are so many people that reach out to me and especially in recovery that say this happened to me. And I think for that reason, it's so important to talk about it because I want everyone to know you are not alone. Yeah, totally. And that's why, you know, when I read your book and I thought, okay, yeah, like I definitely, as we spoke off air, the methadone part of your process, I I was, I just love and, and really wanted to get you on. But then, you know, for these elements of trauma too, in the early formative years, and you have this vibrant, beautiful life where you've been clean and sober for over 20 years. And it just shows such a path of healing that is actually available and that people aren't alone, you know? Yeah. So my two questions, one, do you think that he had ever done this before with anyone else? And then two, do you think your grandmother, his wife suspected? Those are great questions. So I do think that this happened to other people without being specific about it at all. I do think it happened to other people. And that question about my grandmother, nobody's ever asked me that. And I think it's really interesting because she and I didn't get along. She was very almost mean to me, like when I was a kid. And I didn't understand why, like at one point she said something, she she would just say things that were like kind of cruel. Like she said Mm -hmm. at one time that she wished she could drain all my dad's blood out of me. And I was like, what? Like, I'm like nine. Like, I was like, what? Like, yeah, just that's like, very sadistic. Like that. that's it super is. sadistic. Yeah. Right. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And she didn't drink at all. She was like a, a, you know, she was a church going bingo playing non drinker, you know, and she was very crass and had like kind of a vulgar sense of humor and like inappropriate humor, like with a kid, but you know, like around me, but there was definitely some, there's, issue. like, there's I don't something know, there. I don't even know if it was peripheral, like on her part, like him, like wanting to brush my hair and him lavishing attention on me yeah. that I didn't want you. Like, I don't know that like, even that, like from her perspective, sure. like made her angry that sure. he was showing me it. T- I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Cause I feel like, especially back then the wives knowing sometimes and having no power and no resources and no resources for them either to even process or understand that it's not their fault. Because I think they probably took on shame as well, which was then outletted in abusive ways towards the person. I know sometimes that occasionally they would know and and there's not a lot that you can do. And so I, and I thought that when I was reading your book, because you mentioned that she was a little cold to you and that she was mean to yeah. you sometimes. And when I read that, I was like, mm, I wonder if she kind of knew or, you know. Yeah. Knew. I've always wondered that also, and I'll yeah. never, right. I'll never know. But like, I, I always wondered that also, you know. So you guys move out 
and it happens a final time. Yeah. And if you don't mind sharing that story, and then I also want to know why you think it that was the end of it. Yeah, I'd love to share that. Like, I, I don't know why that particular day, like, I can remember it like it was yesterday. Like, I can recall, like, the smell in the house and, like, the the air and, like, like, just different, like, very specific aspects about that day. And I remember him, he wasn't supposed to pick me up from school, which was something he did for my protection. My, my mom wanted me to be, you know, with an adult and I was in junior high and he came into the house and I, I felt like cornered. I felt cornered because he wasn't supposed to be there and I wanted to be alone. Like I didn't want him there and I wanted to like, I didn't want, I was sick of dealing with it and I was sick of him making like lewd comments to me. I was sick of all of it. Like I didn't want him to touch me again. And he tried something and I attacked him. I physically attacked him. And I think it caught him off guard also. He wasn't expecting that. And he was like beyond mad. Like I really thought he was going to like hit me, you know, like it was, he was very mad. And so, you know, he, he was, you know, spewing all kinds of vulgarities at me and calling me a slut and like, you know, like I'm like 12 or something, you know, and like just saying terrible, terrible things to me. And then he, as he's leaving, he's like saying he's going to like, you know, I'm again, like going to be sent back to my dad, like just, you know, all these threats and stuff. So, and he slammed the door and I heard the car take off. And he never, he never tried anything again after yeah. that. Like that yeah. was the last time that anything happened. I think it's because that during the course of him doing what he was doing, I was like, I can't do it. I can't, ha- I can't do this anymore. I cannot yeah, totally. have this happening. And I lashed out and I, I remember like, you know, I clawed at him and pushed at him and was kicking and, and that was it. I probably surprised him and scared him. And, and I remember it was- Because I hadn't the, done that before. Right, you know, yeah. I was terrified. You yeah. know, like I, I was too afraid to fight back until that point. I don't know why that day was different, but I had just reached a point where I just could not, I couldn't do it again. What did your relationship look like him for the rest of your life? Because yeah, what did that start to look like? Well, in a very dysfunctional way, we just acted like it didn't happen. You know, like I just, I went to Easter and I went to their house and I just, you know, like I, you know, like that was like a, a separate box, you know, like that was like a, a different part of us both yeah. and it was over there. And, and that's the way it was until my mom found my diary and then, you know, the dynamic changed Yeah, because my mom now knew, you know, like that had happened. What happened when she found your diary? First of all, did she believe it or did she think you were lost? Yes, what did she, she did. Oh, she did. Yeah. Oh, shit. Well, she okay. said, because she had grown up with him, you know, like she had, she had lived with him. She, he was an alcoholic also, but not the same kind of alcoholic as my dad was. Like my dad was, you know, like tended to be either like just like this life of the party or like violent (laughs) tended to be kind of violent you know so there were two sides of my dad and um my grandfather wasn't violent per se like he wasn't violent acting with my grandmother my mom like anybody he was like a happy drunk like so you would never you know like it was just kind of like goofy and oh you know like (laughs) and like that was his presence from the outside you know aside from what I encountered with him like you know like in private you know but like for as far as the family dynamic him and my grandmother bickered and argued a lot 
in kind of like a honeymooner sort of way. Okay. You know what I mean? Like where it was like that just like, oh, that's just them being them. And so my my mom knew, you know, like she aligned for her that like that, you know, she didn't not believe me, but she was like, you know, I remember holding up the book and being like, is this true? You know, like that's all she said. And like, you know, like I broke down, like I, you know, broke down and cried and had you just come home from school and she was I don't remember. It? She was we had just moved from one house to another and she okay. was going through boxes, I think, and like okay. cleaning out things. Okay. And had come across it. And like, yeah, like as soon as I saw it in her hands, I was like, Oh shit. You know, like, you know, she know. Like I knew. Like I could see it on her face. Yeah. You know. How old were you when that happened? Like thirteen. Oh, so it was kind of soon after everything. It what was happened. kind of soon. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. And so yeah. then what happens? Does she confront him or do you guys stop seeing him or what did you guys do? I think she did confront him. He was in like late stage emphysema, COPD. Oh. He was he was dying, you know? Right. Okay. So, I mean, that sounds terrible to say like it kind of resolved itself, but like he passed yeah. away <laughs> yeah. very okay. shortly after. So, you know, there wasn't anything like no legal things like came okay. up because he died. And okay. then my grandmother was alive for a while. And I don't remember, I really don't remember what I just like, it's like a blank. Like I don't remember what happened with my grandmother after that point, but then she passed away, you know, a few years after that. Yeah. Okay. So when do drugs start to come into your world? Well, <laughs> I start, I mean, like Be, junior with high. your own choice, right? Not you yes, being drugged yeah, yeah, with yeah, yeah. but <laughs> by your own hand, I guess. Yes. <laughs> when I'm not eight. <laughs> I just realized well, that's why Dave's title for your episode is Quaaludes at nine exclamation yeah, point. Yeah. He means you got fucking drugged. Okay. <laughs> right, okay. Because I remember seeing that, I think before I realized it was you and being like, whoa, that's a wild one. What? Yeah. What yeah. Means. Okay. All right. Anyways. Okay. So when do they come into your world by choice? So in junior high, I was doing synchronized swimming and I had pulled a hamstring doing synchronized swimming and was prescribed some like Tylenol codeine, like a, like a Vicodin type okay. thing, you know, like, and it was like very, it wasn't like, you know, a lot, right. but it was like enough that it, like, it was enough that yeah. when I took it, yeah. I knew that I felt differently, sure. you know? Yeah. And so, and like looking back on that now, I'm like, I was like 12 years old. Like, why are they describing me that? That's you know? wild. But they did. Yeah, you know? totally. And so, so I took it. I remember like I was out of practice for like a few weeks and I was on crutches for a couple of weeks and I was taking like a couple pills a day, like at, you know, like as my mom was doling them out, mm-hmm. you know, like, okay, you can have one after dinner or whatever, if it's hurting. <laughs> and then like they were up on the shelf. And like, you know, my mom was at work a lot. Like I was latchkey kid. Like I would come home from school and like, you know, a lot of days my grandfather was picking me up from the house after he got off work. But like in that space between like when I got home and he picked me up or if he wasn't picking me up that day, regardless, I would, you know, pop one or two or, and then we also, you know, had alcohol now. So sometimes I'd throw back a little bottle of whatever with it, you know, And so that's when I started, you know, like by choice, like using, and then my friends, my junior high friends were like stoners and, you know, like kids that were experimenting and with drugs. And so, you know, like they were doing like, you know, angel dust at at lunch break and smoking weed, you know, like, 
so like that made it like you know those were my those were my friends so like we would party and like that's when drugs started to enter the picture like and primarily like I really really like I I never liked weed like I am not me neither not a stoner me neither me neither fucking hate it if I could smoke it now for some reason I wouldn't like if I wasn't in recovery, I still wouldn't do it. We actually have the same loves, which is we love cocaine and don't like weed, but both accidentally ended up on heroin. Yes. <laughs> you know, however <laughs> that goes. Same yeah. thing. That's how I feel too. When you describe doing coke for the first time, that's kind of how I felt too. I was like, this is amazing. And I just can do this for the rest of my life and I'll be good. And that was junior high. And that okay. was like kind of like me, like as soon as I found that, like, I loved the feeling of, like, like codeine. Like, any opiate, Okay, I was like, oh, this is, like, it was amazing. And then when I did coke the first time, I was like, oh, this is what I need. Like, yeah. I need this all the time. Like, how do I how do, I do this every day? You know, right. of course, totally. like, I didn't have the money or means to do that. But, like, I wanted to continue. I sought out, you know, like, um, you know, like, oh, if there's a party, like, oh, are they – does anybody have Coke or like, you know, boyfriends I had like, Oh, you should get some Coke. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it was always like, kind of like, you know what we should do? We should get some Coke. That's what yeah. we should do. <laughs> a driving motivating force, a motivating force. Yes. Yeah. 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 So cocaine and like any opiate that was in anyone's medicine cabinet was like my go-to for a long time until heroin entered the picture. So this is a huge question before we move into like the tower record years. And this is a huge question and you may not know the answer to this. Do you think, and there might not be an answer to this. Do you think that without the abuse and kidnapping by your dad and, you know, the trauma, do you think the volume that you were prescribed for the hamstring in middle school, do you think you would have taken to it in the same way? Or do you think that the ingredients were there? for this to really be an escape for you? Or do you think the ingredients were there natural in your brain? I think, I mean, it's hard to say, but I think just knowing me and like, because even when, even when I was being given the drugs in Nebraska as a little girl, like I remember the feeling of like kind of floating away and like being like, ah, like I don't know what's happening, but like this feels better. Okay. And if that hadn't happened, I don't know either, but I do think like being predisposed like to alcoholism, the way that, you know, that my dad was an addict and alcoholic. Like, I think that that's my opinion that like, that was something that made it really easy. Having that in my DNA made it easier for me to bond with drugs. Totally. That's that's for the most part, my opinion too. I think that it probably all gets mixed together and, you know, like a shake of the dice one way or another. And, and, you know, who knows what the outcomes are, but I agree with that too. I think that there's definitely like the predisposition in the genetics. Steve-O from Jackass, I heard him talking once on, I think it was on Joe Rogan about, you know, addiction and, and, Rogan asked him, he was like, well, if you didn't have the early success that you had with Jackass and all the money, do you think you still would have taken the same road? And Steve-O was like, oh yeah, no, dude, I'm <laughs> I'm like thoroughbred both sides. I got papers. I got addict papers on both sides. I'm top breed addict. And I remember cracking up laughing because I was like, oh my God, that's so true for me too. Like I have papers. I love like, that. That's hysterical. My, isn't that so funny? Like my million dollar pug. I have a friend that jokes, she has like a mutt that she found and she was like, no, he can be peeing blood for four days in a row and be fine. Your guy is allergic to tap water, you know, because he costs a million dollars. But it's like, yeah, tank has papers. I have papers. They just 
instead of saying I'm a pug, they say that I'm, I'm full blood addict. But is yes. that so funny? Yeah. I, I love that idea. I love that too. It's so good. I got to seek out that episode now to listen to it because I yeah. love that. I think it was yeah. the last one that, that Steve-O was on. I think because I heard it kind of recently. So yeah, it's hilarious because you can tell. And I feel like often a lot of non-addicts want to attribute it to something. And Rogan was kind of doing that, I think. Uh, you know, he was like, yeah, but you've, you know, he was kind of leaning in that direction. And people will do that with me too because my parents had this gnarly divorce. And people will be like, well, you know, but your dad and whatever. And I'm like, I hear you. But like, I'm pretty sure that this would have happened anyways. It's just my instinct. I'm in me. And I'm telling you, I really liked it. You know, like, I loved doing drugs so much. So, so much. Yeah. Like, I really think this would have happened anyways. But so as you get older, you go through high school, you graduate high school, right? I dropped out of high school. Oh, you did? Okay. Oh, that's right. You got your GED. You got your GED. And you were doing cosmetology school. Yeah. Okay. This is right. Now (laughs) I remember that. Yeah. And yeah. then you do, your life becomes, have you seen the movie Empire Records? Yes. Okay. Oh, yeah. By the yeah. way, this is my one beef with Dave. He hasn't seen Empire Records. What? I know. <laughs> Text him after this interview and be like, Janine just informed, he also hasn't seen Billy Madison, which came up on our interview. And I'm like, how have you of all people not seen Empire yes. Records? It's about music being your whole world and working in a record store. So yeah, yeah. So you basically become like you're in the cast of Empire Records. It sounds like that's like your real life. Also, it was amazing. Right? It sounds so fun. It was for a young person. It was really like a dream job. Like, you know, you got backstage passes and free records and in stores with, you know, different musicians, yeah. celebrities. Well, because they used to do signings. Right. Yes. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. And I feel like back then too. Te- and I was a buyer for a while. So that oh, made it even okay. more. Yeah. Okay. So you were definitely getting passes to shows. Oh, and- yeah. Because I feel like Tower Records had a real cachet too, especially at that time, because eventually it franchised everywhere. It becomes like Blockbuster. But I remember back then there was like the one on Sunset. There's the one that you worked at. There was one in like New York. And it was like a really big deal to be do it like a signing at Tower Records or, you know what I mean? It had a lot of cachet. Yeah. It sounds like a super it was a cool fun job. job. And as a bonus, like you could be at work on the clock and literally be at the bar across the street all day. <laughs> like, honestly, like we right. would, you know, spend all day, like. Which I love is a Denny's. Yes. Yeah, I love yeah. that it's a Denny's because I was like, that's yes. right. Denny's used to serve booze. I fucking forgot oh, about yeah. that. I mean, there probably are yeah. some that still do. Well, this particular Denny's had an actual lounge in the back. So oh, that's it wasn't amazing. part of the main Denny's. Okay, it was okay. Like, it was like a Denny's bar, which was like, what? That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. They had one of those in LA next to the airport too. There was a Denny's and then there was a bar next to it with like red leather booths and you could smoke yes. inside and yep. very similar to that. Yep. I totally forgot Just about that. like that. that. When yeah. you went into an interview, Eddie Money, actual Eddie Money was there? Yes. Yeah. Two tickets lived- to paradise. Is that him? <laughs> he lived. He lived in the area, yeah. Okay, okay, cool. <laughs> and he was friends with the manager, so Okay, yeah. so it was yeah. actual Eddie Money. Okay, because I was like, because the other guy's name was Barry White, but it wasn't Barry White. And so no, I was like, oh, that's actually not him? his real name, but oh, yeah, that's a student. Okay, yeah. all right, okay, okay, okay. But it was actual the artist Eddie Money who said hire her. Yes. Okay, yeah. that's awesome. Yep. What a great story yeah. for you to have forever. Yeah, it is a good story, Yeah. <laughs> It's funny, you know. It's hilarious. Yeah, it's hilarious. 
And like I lived in LA for a while too, doing sort of like a little bit what you were doing, no modeling, but like extra work and acting and stuff. And it's, it's so funny, like the random ass encounters you have with like real celebrities. And we don't really think about it, but like, I remember I was taking a yoga class once and you know, at the very end when you're doing like spinal twist at the end and you have to look like if your knee is going this way, you look the other way, but there are always people that look the wrong way. I looked the correct way and the person next to me looked the wrong way and it was Rob Lowe, the actor. Oh my God, I died. He, yeah, he was like, it's this there to me. And I was like, oh. And, and you're I, just like eye to eye with yeah. Rob Lowe. Yes. Another time in that same studio, I walked in to talk to my friend Dennis, who's actually now a Peloton instructor, Dennis Morton. I walked in to say something to him and he had somebody by the feet that was upside down. And he turned around to ask to see what I wanted. And I just glanced down. It was Mina Suvari upside down. Oh my God. And I was like, Again, yeah, hey, like, oh, what? hey, I know. Is that crazy? And I was like, hi, yes. Mina Suvari. I have like the most random, and you want to call them by their last name. I have the yes. most, this, I won't even get into the story, but I have another one where I randomly met Cedric the Entertainer in an alley. I dropped in some an stuff. Alley. Yes. So I had auditioned for a play. And I was leaving and it was like sort of an alley street and I had like bombed this audition and I was holding a bunch of stuff and I dropped it and some guy helped me pick it up. There was a couple of guys playing like pickup basketball. There was a hoop like on the building on the other side of our acting studio and some guy helped me pick up my stuff and I look up and it was Cedric the Entertainer. Oh my gosh. And that was his, I know, I think it was like his... Maybe he had a studio or something because I was like, what are you doing here? And he was like, oh, I, <laughs> I work around here or something like that. And so I think that was probably like his casting office or something. But we just were looking at it. And that's the kind of shit that happens. You live there long enough. But anyways, so you're at Tower Records. You're doing drugs, all the things, you know, but it's still kind of like fun and partying. And then something really big in your life changes, which is that you meet your future husband, which takes you on a different path, right? Which takes you into a path more of like normalcy. Ish. Yeah, like right. temporary. Yes, temporarily. Yeah. I, yes. Had, I had kids. I had kids like right yeah. away. Yeah, and I got prescribed when my kids were really little. I was really young, so like you know, all my none of my friends were having kids. You know, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so like you know, my kid, my friends are all like partying and you know going to parties, going to shows, like doing all those things. And then and here I am with kids. So like of course like I want to still hang out with my friends and do those things. But like I said this recently on another podcast, like I was really high on motherhood for a while, like motherhood, like really like being pregnant and like, just like this prospect of new different life and all of that, like it was exhilarating. And like, I was, I really like kind of fed off that for a while, you know, like it was exciting. And do other women feel that way too? Cause I heard you say that. I don't do, know. I wonder I if know. other women feel that way. I've never heard anyone say that, but maybe they do. Yeah. Like nod pod yeah. by listeners, if you guys felt high on pregnancy, let me know. Cause you also mentioned like, there's also like some attention. People are excited. They're like, oh, you're yes. so cute. You're so cute. They say that to you all the time. You know, that kind of thing. I wonder if other women feel that way too. I mean, it's got to do something like dopamine wise. It yes. must. I mean, well, I would, all, sense, I would but... hope so. I also would yes. hope so. Come on. You're <laughs> yeah. earning it. You're earning it. Yeah. For the rest of your life. So like, <laughs> I really like, I didn't, I didn't even really have a desire to use it all. Like when I was pregnant or like when my kids were very, very small and then when they were like infants and then, but then as when they were toddlers, I was prescribed a narcotic for headaches and I didn't seek it out. It was completely like random, like 
it was a new doctor in the practice I was going to. And like, I went in for a checkup and he was like, how are things going? And then I was like, oh, I'm you know, like, I have some, and I'm getting headaches. Occasionally like, I, I was explaining these like migraines I was getting. And it really wasn't that often. It was just kind of like conversational. I didn't bring it up like doctor shopping yeah. at that point. <laughs> yeah. And so he prescribed me narcotics, you know, like immediately I was like, okay, like okay. if you want to. If you think I need those, then all right, you know. Right, right. So I took, I started taking them like, you know, like as needed. And then it, you know, quickly became like me justifying as needed where right, I was like, totally. yeah, I think I need one, you know, like, and, and then, you know, that progressed to me just burning through the prescription and like, you know, like being like, I don't know where I put them or I spilled them down the sink or, you know, all the things that you tell doctors because you have run through your 60-day prescription in 10 days. <laughs> that you thing know? they gave you, you wrote, I never heard of it before. I don't think it's around yeah. anymore, but you wrote I the breakdown. I think it is because I've, I've, I've looked it up before. Okay. Yeah. That would have been my jam, dude. It was like oh a little God, bit of amazing. caffeine, a little bit of opiate. Like it sounded great. I was like, I really wish they still prescribed this. I mean, I guess yes. not now, but yeah. You know I mean? And I would have friends, you know, that would, I would be like, do you want one of these? And they're like, what is it? And I'd tell them and they'd be like, what? the fuck is that? You know? <laughs> what's it called? Dior, what's it called? Fiorotex? Codeine, codeine and Fioraset. And it was, a cap, okay. it was a, a capsule and it was like these profile faces like descending and like just from the caps, like looking at the capsule, you're like, that's going to be a good time. <laughs> Is it supposed to be that picture of you like fading into nothing? Yes. Yeah. So like, you're just like looking at the capsule going, well, okay. Like this is, I mean, it's right there. Like that's you're going to have a good time. Yeah. You know, and they had all the warnings on the side, like do not operate heavy machinery, may cause dizziness, may cause drowsiness, you know, like. I was like, oh, well, fortunately, I'm not driving any, fork- bottle. Yeah, I'm not driving any fucking forklifts today. So I'm good. Yeah. So you start taking those. And initially, it does what it does, which is that we tend to do better on opiates in the beginning. I did, you know, and you eventually, well, actually, I have a random question. You have two boys, right? A daughter and a son. Okay. Based on your history, did you feel more panic do you think or nervousness when they would go places or have a babysitter watch them or was that difficult for you absolutely yes okay for sure like I was very like a neurotic like overprotective in some ways but not in other ways well you were using inconsistently that's fair that's (laughs) yeah well because you were using for a lot of it but how did you choose the people because you know kind of what to look for how did you choose the people that would take care of them so I had a nanny one time okay and the nanny let my daughter go down this super steep hill in the Oakland Hills on her bicycle and she got terribly abraded like fell very badly and I was like okay nope (laughs) not doing that again so I would just have family members okay like that yeah, my mom like did a lot of my mom oh, was right. really mom a was huge there. part okay. of all the care with my kids. So, oh, yeah. that's helpful. I'm really glad that yeah. she was there because that that would have been such a nightmare if you were alone and you have your history and you're trying to find someone. Because I've often thought about that about women and men that become parents that have these experiences and you're like, oh my god, every time you come home, you're like, are you okay? You know, that would just be challenging. So you eventually split from your first husband. And things kind of devolve for you using wise, right? Yes. Yeah. So what does that start to look like? Because then we get to heroin. 
it was just a lot of like I you know I was partying like from the Cody and Fira set like the jump from that to like going to raves and going to shows and like you know like leaving the kids with my mom for the weekend or you know like things like that like started increasing more and more and more you know like and then once I started doing heroin like doing coke and heroin and ecstasy things like that like it was I mean it was just like game on you know like it was totally full you know it's like zero to 100 yeah yeah (laughs) so and you started with smoking heroin. And smoking heroin was your primary method of primarily, use. Primarily. Like, okay, yeah. Okay. Primarily. Yeah. And so, you know, the heroin addiction goes, and I don't really want to gloss over this, but at the same time, I really want to get to like the methadone side of things. The heroin addiction goes the way most heroin addiction goes, which is that before you know it, you're strung out and, you know, we have to do it all the time. And you know, that you're doing all the different things to get it. And you were in a codependent using relationship. So you guys are both using, right? Yeah. And it becomes... And lying to each other about our use. So I heard you say that on on another show as well. And everybody lies to the person that they're with, you know, like, and Dave was like, well, I didn't. And you were like, that's really impressive. And he was like, I don't know if that was impressive. And I was like, no, no, it was impressive. It is. Yeah. Yes. Because my boyfriend would have left me dope sick on the ground. He did. I mean, okay. absolutely not. Yeah. I guess I should. He was okay. And I was okay. He did once. I will always give him credit for this. I was in jail for like four days dog ass sick and he'd gotten out before me and he bailed me out which was already like great that he did that and he brought dope with him to the jail and so I did it right when I got in the car and (laughs) that was like that was like hero move for me yeah 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 but you know so you're like best boyfriend ever boyfriend ever (laughs) thank you so but yeah lying all the things that come with it my husband is in recovery as well and he used alone he never had like a run-in partner that he used with because I've talked to him about that I'm like you know like it'll come up and he only ever used alone and I know and he's like well if I ever I, you know, if I did have a girlfriend, I would still use alone probably. And I'm like, no, you would, if she used also, you probably would because it becomes this whole thing where you're using with the person together and it's like a together. part of your relationship. And it's, it's a just, romantic aspect. It's like having a third person in yes. your relationship, yes. you know, because yes. that is the heroin or Coke for, in my case, it was heroin and Coke, like became like another entity in the relationship. Totally, you totally. Know? And for you, because I feel like you did this in a very, you might not feel this way, but you did it in a very cool 90s heroin chic <laughs> way where everybody was like musicians and models and stuff like that. I was like the Walmart version of you. And so like when you're the Walmart version of what you and your boyfriend were, we think we're like Bonnie and Clyde, but we're like the meth version of Bonnie and Clyde, you know, stealing <laughs> things from Home Depot and feeling like you're like Bonnie and Clyde, but it's like a whole thing, you know, it's a whole part of the relationship. So it continues and then he dies, right? And well, you got- that was in the beginning. Like I was okay. with someone that died. Oh, that was a different then, person. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And okay. then I got involved with his roommate. Oh, that's that's right. who I actually, that's yeah. Right. So Classic. I ended up, yeah. <laughs> 
classic. Keep it in the family. Classic. That yeah. sounds terrible, but you know what I mean? <laughs> I know what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so we started dating and then got really strung out together. Like we both, like both of our addictions accelerated, you know, like just like crazy. And you have your kids the whole time, right? Yes. Yeah. So you never lost them. No, but yeah, no, did not lose them. Which right. I'm still like very grateful that that didn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. So the guy that you're with, he brings up to you methadone. Yes. And <laughs> I thought he was crazy. I was like, what? <laughs> well, had you heard of it? Because I had never heard of it. Had you heard of I it? I don't think, I, no, I don't think okay. I had. Because I, I was either. like, because I was like, what is it? And like, if it works, like why? Why isn't more people doing it? Why are people doing it? Yeah. yeah I didn't totally. understand what it was at all or how it worked, but I was also desperate and I didn't yes. know, you know, what else to do. Yeah. So I was willing to try anything. It sounded magical to me. I remember where I was. I was driving and I was going from one client's house to another and I was on the phone, not with my boyfriend, but a friend of his. And he was like, well, I'm going to do the methadone detox. And I was like, what is that? What is You're that? Like, what? <laughs> and he was like, well, there's like the clinic and Escondido, which is near here. It's $15 a day and they detox you down a little bit at a time. And I was like, Br oh, brilliant. This sounds great. Oh, I'd never heard of this. How come no one's told me about methadone? And I attempted to do that detox, which, you know, for me ultimately wasn't successful. But so you guys start going to the clinic and you initially also start to do the detox, which was a blind detox. That's what you signed up for first, right? Yes. Okay. That was the first round, the first go. The first yeah. go. Yeah. So let's talk about the blind detox and what that is and what happened for you. So we went in and talked with the woman who would eventually become my counselor. And she was like, okay, like we'll start you on the detox program. And I was like, okay, fine. You know, like, so that was, that was the first time we did that. And I don't remember how many times I mentioned it in the book because I was like, I can't just be like, oh, and then we're on methadone again. And then we're off of methadone. Then we're yeah. back on methadone. But it was like many times where okay. we would get like a week in. And like, for whatever reason, decide like, let's, you know, let's go out and cop. Let's right. go get some fuck methadone. Let's go get high, you know? Right. Totally. Okay. So there were things, there were several times like where, you know, or the dose wasn't holding us. Right. Yeah. And so okay. we were like, screw it. You know? One time you were, you were late. I think they were closed. Yeah. Which I actually want to interject here because I had somebody else recently on the podcast who did was doing the methadone kind of on and off thing. And I said to him, I was like, oh my God, just like the methadone cycle. Like I can see it right now being in line for methadone and just like the nightmare of getting there on time. And I felt really bad because I had a long time listener comment on one of my TikToks and she was like, hey, I felt kind of bummed about what you said about the methadone clinic, that it was like a nightmare because it really worked for me. And I want to be so clear that like, this is what you and I were talking about this off air. I think methadone is, can be a godsend and really works. It did work for you. I think it can work either as maintenance or as a detox. What I think is challenging, and I meant that then, is the logistics aren't easy. And I don't know why no. they're all like this. If anything, yes. I think that they should make it easier. They all close at nine. There's not a second to spare. 
Sometimes they're far away from you. You have to have the money every single day for it. Now Medi-Cal out here pays for it, but like you have to have the money if you have Medi-Cal and you have the resources to figure out then how to get signed up or whatever. But like you have to have the 15 bucks every day. You have to get there. There's limited hours. That's the part of the cycle that for me was such a nightmare. I was like, I am chained to this process. And like ultimately you can get take-homes. Cool, great. But that takes like a long time. It does. And you bring up all of these aspects of the logistics that were challenging for you. You had kids waiting in your car that you were taking to school in the morning. Or I was in line with them at the methadone clinic. Bringing them inside in line. Yeah. yeah, Okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the part that I think, I think it could be easier. And I don't know why they're all set. They must be set up that way on purpose. If I had to guess, I would say it's probably to try to get some sort of like Routine, normalcy, and routine into people's lives where you're going to get up early. Yeah. Okay. Because you're going to want to get your dose. That makes so, sense. But like, it is very unforgiving. Like, where yeah. you know, there was there were times that I missed that window by one minute because right. you know, like, because my kids had a late start that day, yeah. or some mm-hmm. one of my kids was sick, or would didn't want to get in the car or whatever it was, or, you know, or I had some work thing or like whatever it was, like there is very at that time anyway, like I can't speak to today because it's been a long time. No, it's very strict now still. Yeah. So, and it was hard to get take home too. Like you really, you know, I had a false positive at one point and I was like, you know, like I was like, oh my God, like I need these freaking take homes. Like I, I can't, it's so hard, you know, like if you're a mom, especially like to get in there I can't imagine doing it as a mom. It was hard as a single person at 32 taking care of myself. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I can't yeah. I never yeah. even thought about it in the concept of also you're trying to get someone to school and but it can be so helpful like it was with you because all of the best things that can happen from this system do happen for you, which is that yeah, you're in and out, you're in and out. But couple of things happen. You end up getting stable as opposed to constantly scrambling for dope and your counselor suggests that you go to 12 step, which ultimately also becomes something very helpful for you. So let's talk about, cause you're not, you eventually get off of methadone and you do their actual detox, right? And it worked. So was it a blind detox that you did or did you know how much they were taking you down? So what happened was, because I had been doing the detoxes over and over. Right. Okay. The person that I was with, we, we ended up splitting up because we just couldn't, we could not get sober together. And my counselor was like, this is not helping you to be in this relationship. You know, she went as far as to say, like, you're not going to be able to do this within this relationship. And I, you know, like, it was a moment where I was like, fuck, like, oh, God, okay. Uh, You know, like, and I just had to believe that maybe she knew a little better than I did. Yeah, totally. Was an incredibly sweet, straightforward woman. I trusted and believed her because I really felt like she had my best interest at heart. And so, I mean, that was just, I mean, I didn't break up with him because of that, but I mean, right, our relationship yeah. had some issues anyway, right, you know, <laughs> clearly, I'm sure. I'm you sure. know, and he was doing other drugs and lying about him. And I'd be like, you're totally smoking crack. And he'd be like, no, I'm not. And I'm like, I can smell no, it. He was, <laughs> yeah. he was smoking crack to help with the detox, right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Which is such an addict move. I would have done some shit like that too. He's like, yeah, the yeah. crack is really helping. Okay. <laughs> so we split up and 
I mean, we're friends now today, but oh, good. So it's, all, it's all good. But um, oh, I love when that happens. Yeah, I love yeah. when somebody that you used with, I don't have a lot, but someone that you used with, you can be cool with later. My first drug dealer saved my ass later and got me into sober That's living awesome. and is why I'm clean. And he was my first connection and he saved my ass. And every year during college football season, he's an Oklahoma Sooners fan and I'm a Georgia fan. And he'll be like, fuck the Bulldogs every year still to this day. He lives in Vegas. And I'm like, fuck the Sooners. And I like love this guy. So, <laughs> Anyways, I love when that happens. I'm glad you guys are friends. Yeah. That's good. Okay. Yeah. So we split up and my counselor was like, hey, what about going on maintenance? And I was like, absolutely not. Because <laughs> I just I just was like, I don't want to do that. But she was like, why don't you like get some counseling, get back in therapy, go to 12. Like she was kind of suggested things that were like, look, this is what I'm telling you is probably going to work for you based on what I know about you. She really cared about like me being able to parent my children and be what they needed. You know, like she really kind of drove that home. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to do the, I'm going to do the things you are telling me I should do because I don't, you know, like you know better than I do, I guess, you know? Totally. Yeah. So I did like I did, you know, and then, and then at least with that clinic at that time, like I had more of an idea of where I was when I was coming down on my dose. How long were you on maintenance before you decided to start to come down? I don't remember exactly, but it was like months, you know, like, like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But I don't remember exactly. Okay. Yeah. But that's a great point. You were able to use it to stabilize. Yeah, get your life it gave together. Me distance, so yeah. that I could be like, okay, this is what life can look like totally. without chasing drugs all day. Right, and I think that's super valid. Whether somebody stays on maintenance forever or whether they ultimately do what you did in detox, I think it's about quality of life and the quality of your life when you're constantly scrambling to get fucking well and the connect's not answering and you're sick so you can't do something or like you, God forbid, you've got kids and you can't parent them because you're not present, but just drinking a a shot of something in the morning allows you to change your whole life. Right. Cool. Good. You know, and I also believe that And this is very different from, I think, what a lot of people believe in 12-step, maybe even still to this day, unfortunately. I think you can also do step work and progress your life and connect to something outside of yourself during that time as well. I believe that. Absolutely. I would sponsor somebody on methadone. I've sponsored people on Suboxone. I haven't sponsored anybody on methadone, but I would. You know, I I, I have. I absolutely have. have. Yeah. You can totally do work and change your life and move forward. You know, it's also like you're busting up your veins if you're using a needle. Plus, if there's fentanyl out there in the world now, the methadone, you know what you're getting. You know, it's just it really is a viable option forward, you know? And if somebody's habit's really high and it's been high for a long time, you know, you're 55 years old and you've been shooting dope for a long time, methadone might be the best option for you to get your fucking life back, you know? So you do get, you do ultimately do the detox and you knew kind of what it was as it was taking you down? Yeah, yeah. Okay, because I do want to be like transparent about this though. It's not easy, right? No, no, but it wasn't. But because like you hear people talk about like detoxing from heroin and kicking and like kicking from methadone, like I think I truly believe that like that detox is so, so different for every person because I know people that have had a really hard time getting off Suboxone, methadone, like whatever. I know people that, you know, like that have been able to, I know people that have been able to detox slowly and taper down off heroin, like 
Yeah. You know, do you really? I do. Yeah. I mean, like, and they're, and they say, you know, like I thought methadone was harder. I'm like, okay. You know, like, so I think, so I think it's really individual. Like I agree with that. Yeah. I just tapered down till I was like down to nothing, you know, like down to like nothing, you know? So, and you say something in your book that I think is really important. I think this timeline is important. The first week after your last dose, you go to the emergency room twice because you're in pain. Two months later, you're driving down the road feeling the pink cloud, especially that we as opiate addicts, I think, feel when you realize you're not strung out. I think I love that you gave that window because first week you want to die, you're in in the ER. Two months later, it's fucking over. It's over. Yes. And I'm sure it was sooner than that, too. That's just maybe when you remember. But like, I think that's important for someone to know. Yeah, that first week might be really bad. But if we go back... You know, again, if you're choosing to do the detox, if you're keeping maintenance, of course, that's fine. But if you're choosing to do the detox, that first week might be wildly uncomfortable, but there is an end to it, you know? Right. It's not forever. Yeah. And how old are you when you do this, when you detox? I can't remember exactly, but like 30 maybe? I'm trying to think. No. 28. I can't remember how old oh, it was. <laughs> but you never but use yeah. again, right? That's your survival. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. I'm like, I'm trying to do the math. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you have over 20 years, right? Yes, yeah. Okay, wow. So, That's And you never yeah. use again after that detox. You never use again. That's amazing. That's amazing. And that's what I mean. There's a methadone success story. This is what I wanted to share. You know, this is how it works. This is how it can work. And you start going to... NA at first and then AA. You also said something in the book that I've actually never heard, which is that NA is like your codependent mother and AA is like your tough love father. In Sandy, where I am, it's the exact opposite. Oh, it's not is, funny. Yeah, like a codependent mom, I think. And then NA is like your tough love dad, so at least where are the meetings <laughs> I went to. You know what I, I mean? I think also like-, like meetings change and evolve over time. Like the meetings that I was going to like if I walked into well the meeting that I the meeting that I described at the church where somebody follows me out that meeting actually doesn't exist anymore but I mean they still have meetings at that church but the meetings change over time so like what served me in you know like January of 2000 might not serve me now because I've grown as a person my needs are different and I was on methadone going into those meetings like I I did 12 step like on methadone like so Like, I think that's important, like, also to know that, like, nobody else can judge what you are doing for your recovery because they don't have to, they don't have to live your life. They don't have to live your life. You have to know what is best for you Yeah. and what's going to work for you. And like, and it's a lot, sometimes it is a lot of trial and error and figuring out, like, I, I hated that meeting. That didn't meeting that meeting didn't work for me. I think that usually most of the time you will find your people. Like if you go to enough meetings you're going to walk into some room and somebody's going to say something and you're going to be like, yeah, you're my people. Totally. That happened to me. I finally ended up at HA at Heroin Anonymous. And that oh, was my wow. people. My husband and I still feel the same way. So my husband relapsed for like, like a year this past year. And now he's got just over 60 days. And he feels like the reason why he's doing better right now is because we went back to HA and he's like, it's where we met, but you're right. I just went to this meeting. Same thing isn't there anymore, but I went to this one meeting and I heard people talk 
And I was like, whew, these are the funniest people I've ever heard in my entire life. Yes, first of all. Yeah. Also were the exact yeah. like the hardest I've ever laughed in my same life. Same sense of humor. Like yes. you can laugh at the same totally. dark, terrible, yes. ridiculously funny right. things. Yeah. And that's <laughs> and that's your group and that's your meeting. Yeah. So was 12 step ultimately like positive for you? Did you you had sponsors and did you do like the whole night? Because that's where your book kind of ends. It's like, so what does your 20 years of recovery look like? I mean, it's looked, like I said, like it's kind of, it's looked different over the years. Like I've kind of like wavered back and forth from like, sometimes there have been chunks of time where I'm like NA focused and yeah, I'm, okay. and I've been like just doing NA and there've been times where I'm uh, doing both. And there's times when I'm doing just Alcoholics Anonymous, but it's really, you know, and then I do things like alternative recovery. Like I'm, I do clean and sober punks in the Bay Area. I do dopey meetings, sober buddies. Like, it, yeah, like I'm okay. not like anything that I think is benefiting my recovery. I'm open to. Yeah, totally. You know? That's how I, I feel too. Why limit yourself? Yeah. You know, like why yeah. say like, oh, I'm, I'm doing 12 step and that's, and that's it. Right. <laughs> because there's so much more. The more yes. you open up, the more it benefits. It's not unlike like the AA slogan, like, or what you put into it, you get back. It is that way for me, like blanket, like across, across the board, like whatever recovery I put, put in, you know, like that I put into my program, I'm getting all of that back. So I, I stay really open to like all forms of recovery that I feel work for me. Have you done as well? How have you, I don't want to say recovered, how have you processed and dealt with and gotten to a place where it doesn't inform maybe your choices as much anymore, the abuse and the trauma? Was that through therapy? Did some of that work out through step work or how did you work through that? I mean, there was some of it definitely like working with a sponsor and even working with sponsees, you know, like has okay. I've been able to process that. Oh, but yeah. um, I also have had like for decades an amazing therapist that I okay. worked with. And yeah, he's like saved, like literally saved my life like a number of times, like, you know, like been involved in like hospitalizing me, you know, like oh, when wow. I was younger. Yeah, I think it's a lot, you know, like a lot of different, a lot of different things. But like, I would say like, Therapy was like very important for me. I did support groups. You're the first person that's ever said sponsoring others too, which of course that makes sense. Of course that makes sense. Sponsoring others would help you process, you know, a similar trauma. That that totally makes sense. So sponsoring others and therapy, a lot of, and we didn't talk about it a lot today, but the struggles with anorexia, bulimia, and for me the binge eating stuff, the body dysmorphia would kind of come up when my drug use went down and then my drug use would go up and the body dysmorphia would go down for obvious reasons. One, I'm actually losing weight. (laughs) And two, my whole focus is on getting well or whatever. And so it just kind of goes away and then it would come back up. And was that the case for you? Has eating, because you also model and so, which you still do, right? Like I did something a couple of years ago, okay, like a, okay. cal- a catalog for s- some people. Okay. Okay. But you did it in sobriety, right? You did some modeling have, in sobriety. Yeah, okay. Yes. And so, acting. Yeah. Okay. So how did you deal with those feelings as they came up without using again? So I, I think I'm really fortunate in that the work that I did with my therapist around eating disorders really like he really helped me understand my relationship with food and with and with how 
it's just like eating disorders are very much an addiction. For me, I unplugged anorexia and bulimia and plugged in drug use. So it was just like a tra like transferring one addiction for another. And I'm also like someone that is naturally thin. And then, of course, like you said, like when you're doing cocaine and heroin and I was smoking and drinking coffee all day, like I was very much the 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 aesthetic of like heroin chic. I was like 115 pounds and like five foot eight, you know, so like that was, you know, like I was very thin naturally. And then with that on top of it, like, you know, so I didn't have I didn't really struggle that obsession was lifted from me. Like the obsession of like how I viewed myself as like the dysmorphia was lifted. And like, I, I really attribute that to the work I did in support groups and with my therapist. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. So but, what, yeah, but it did, it did absolutely resurface in the form of addiction. <laughs> uh, right. Yeah. 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 Okay. And so what does life look like for you today? Today, I do, you know, I do a lot of writing and have my book out and I have a great relationship with both my kids. I see them all the time. I see my mom like twice a week. So that to me is, is the gift of recovery is that I get to have these healthy, wonderful, bountiful relationships with these people that I love so much that, you know, like that I did harm to, in, yeah. you know, like in my addiction, like that is like the gift of it is that I get to be in their lives today and be a participating, loving part of it. So where can everybody find you? The name of your book and your social media and everywhere, everywhere somebody could go learn more about you. My book is C, Swallow Me, S-E-A, Swallow Me. And it is available on Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Book Soup in LA, Smashwords. If you Google it, you can find it. I bought it on Kindle too. You bought it on Kindle. Yeah, Kindle. I did because well, you sent me the copy, but my husband's going to sleep a lot earlier than me. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, I have to be able to watch. I have to be able to read this. <laughs> so I'm just going to buy it on Kindle. So it's on Kindle as well. Yes. What is the meaning of Sea Swallow Me? Okay, it's a song. It's a cocktail twin okay. song. Yeah. And okay. it's kind of funny because I had this stupid working title for years. And then okay. somebody, a friend of mine that's on the same press that I, or publisher that I'm with said, I was like, God, I just wish I could name it Sea Swallow Me. And he was like, well, why don't you? And I was like, I can do that. I, I thought like, it's yeah. copyright. He was like, yeah, you can use a song oh, right. title. You can't quote the lyrics. And so oh, I, I was like, oh, okay. that's the title. Like, that's it. Oh, like, it cool. was like, that's it. So, okay, it well, I need come. to listen to that song. Yeah. Then. Okay. It's very kind of like dark and ethereal yeah, sort okay. of, but it really, to me, the, the title of the song really encapsulates how I felt in addiction, just taken over. And then your social media is? Is Suki underscore Jones. Okay. There's a little 12 year old Suki Jones model now too. Have You're you seen, if you Google your name? Yeah. If you Google your name, her name is Suki Jones. I don't, because I don't think it's you. I think it's current. Wow. She's like 12 years old and she's a model and her headshots come up for some casting agency in like, I don't want to say Nebraska, but something <laughs> that like that. That really funny. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> yeah. I know. Cause I was like, oh, is this her? Yeah. And then I was like, oh, this doesn't look like her at all. Cause it was modeling headshots and I was opening them and I was like, this is a different fucking Suki Jones model with brown hair. Oh my gosh. What I'm the hell? To, I'm going to have to look. Yeah. I'll have to find Google it. Suki Jones yeah, yeah. and you'll see this girl. Yeah. That's uh -huh. amazing. Isn't that crazy? It I know. Really I know. It's funny if she's from Nebraska. 
I know. No, I think it's like a Midwest agency. I'm seriously, that's why I thought it was you for a second. And then it took me a moment to think like, you know, for us, the pictures looked different. Yeah. Yeah. And these are like sharp new. And I was like, wow, whoever color judged these did a great job. And then I was like, oh, Janine, this is recent. So anyways, but yeah. So, well, thank you so much for your time. I'm so glad that I got to read your book and meet you. And you're such a testament to like what healing, you know, can look like. Thank you so much, Janine. It was like my pleasure to be on. I'm so happy to meet you.